they were on the top, the only way out was down. And of course, the, there was a, a very bloody battle that took place on the top of that, that ridge. And the result was that many men lost their lives. Desmond Doss was a Seventh-day Adventist who joined the army, not by choice, he was conscripted, but he refused to carry arms. He said that he would not carry a gun. He was not called to kill people, but to save people. Now, he might have had a different terminology about saving people, but they, he basically went into basic training. His life was a misery. Those who had authority over him made his life an absolute, to say hellhole is not sure of what it was for him. His um, bunkmates continually um, goaded him and his whole situation was quite terrible. They kept trying to force him to take up arms and he refused and he decided he didn't want to be a conscientious objector so much as a conscientious participator. So not to carry a gun but to serve in the medical corps. And so he would go out with his platoon. He wasn't in charge of it, but as part of his platoon, he would go out not carrying a weapon, but carrying medical aid. When they got to Hacksaw Ridge, having had all this terrible um, banter and, and stuff that was against him, he, he climbed the cliff face, the same as every one of his, his platoon, and went into battle. And as men were shot, he would tend to their wounds. Well, the battle did not go well, and many men were deciding to go back to the edge and to abseil down the front of the cliff face. But Desmond Doss would not leave the top until every man that was alive was rescued. I can't remember exactly how many men, I don't know if I wrote down how many men that he actually saved. 75. He stayed on the top and he rescued 75 wounded men, one at a time, dragging them to the cliff face and then lowering them down himself because he was the only man there who could do it, lowering them down several hundred feet to the floor and once they were on the floor to return to the battlefield and tend to others. And he did that 75 times before he left the battlefield and came down himself. He was a man who demonstrated something by example, something different to the other men that served with him. They might have felt strong while they had a rifle or a machine gun in their hand, but this man, he was truly courageous, truly strong as he tended their wounds and manoeuvred them to that cliff face before leaving the battlefield himself. In our passage this morning, Jesus demonstrates something completely different, just in a way like Desmond Doss, not feeling that he has to be the same as everybody else and do the same things as everybody else not be proud, not be pompous and not willing to bend down and wash people's feet as was the custom when people were invited round for a meal, um, etc. And so 
Jesus demonstrates something different. Right from the off, we are told that right from the incarnation, Jesus demonstrated something completely different. Paul in Philippians tells us not to look out for our own interests, but the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, as part of the Trinity, had the right to remain where he was. And yet in the incarnation, he comes and he dwells amongst us. He dwells amongst us. He lays aside those things that he could have so rightly counted his right in order to serve. And here in John 13, like we've been spending a few weeks in this passage, the truth is that Jesus again demonstrates this willingness to serve. The verse we used at the very beginning was Mark 10:45. for the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He embodied servant leadership. What made Jesus attractive to people? Have you ever wondered that? Why did the sinners love being around this man? Why did they not like being around the Pharisees so much? But what was it that drew the most unbelievable people to gather around this man Jesus? Yes, he was the son of God, admittedly. But what was it that drew them? I want to tell you. It was because of his openness, his acceptance, his arms wide open. Just like Steve gave in the picture, Jesus stood on a boat with his arms wide open saying, come to me. He got criticized because he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and somehow those who were more holy felt Oh, he's letting the side down. Can you not see? Can't you see he's messing up? He's not being right to the law. But Jesus came not for those who were well or considered themselves well, but for the sick. So Jesus embodies servant leadership. Our world likes, it talks servant leadership, but what it really likes is power and control, and authority, and position, and somewhere you can climb to. The problem is, for most people who get to the very top level, they find out it wasn't what they were going to expect anyway, or it wasn't anything like what they expected. And that you talk to many people who sit in those areas of so-called authority, And you soon find out that not all is hunky-dory always. So over the last couple of weeks, we looked at Jesus led from a place of love, agape, the highest form of love. He didn't see his relationship with these disciples as positional. He didn't see them as work colleagues. He had great affection for them. He loved them. The passage tells us he loved his own to the end. He loved them. He had a strong affection for them like a father loves his children. 
So was Jesus' love for his disciples. It was an unselfish love, a willingness to give everything for them and to them. It wasn't based on what was returned or deserved. He poured himself out into these men. And then Jesus led from a place of security. He knew he'd come from his father and he knew he was returning to his father. And therefore he was able to come from a place of security. He didn't have to worry himself what other people thought about him. He was only concerned with what his father thought about him. And that he did what his father wanted. That he would fulfill the the work of his father. And so he was able in that security to put his destiny into the hands of his father and serve. Jesus led from a place of vulnerability. That's what we looked at last time. How he took off his outward garment, laid it aside, put a towel around his waist and he began to wash feet that had been through the daily grime and excrement that was on the, on the path. And I have to say to you, you know, he didn't need to do that. He was their master, their Lord, their saviour, their Messiah. You would have thought they would have been queuing up. But they weren't. And so Jesus took that place. So this morning, just for a few minutes, what's the time, love? Quarter past, right. Just for a few moments, I want to look at Jesus' leadership as an example. In verse 15, Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. I have already said that washing of feet in and of itself... Whilst it did have a powerful meaning, he was talking actually about Judas who was to betray him. They weren't all clean who were there. And Judas was going to betray him. And he said, you'll understand later on. And I believe that's what the understanding was, that he was going to be betrayed by one of them. But Jesus, taking this place as a servant, washed feet... And it's not so much about the washing of feet in and of itself that I think that is the important point, but the fact that Jesus was willing to take the lowest place. We all know the disciples had issues, didn't they? They all wanted to be the most significant and the best. They were probably those who weren't within the inner three, you know. Peter, James and John, they weren't in the inner three, probably had little gripes and moans about it behind the scenes, just like people do in church. Because they see that they think that something is a click and they're on the outside, so they have a little mumble about it and grumble. There was the impetuous Peter, who although keen, was always putting his foot in his mouth. I love Peter, he's keen, isn't he? You know, he's the first to put his hand up. He's the first to open his mouth. I relate to this man so much. First to put his hand up, first to open his mouth and say something, sometimes to make an awful gaffe and then find himself being lovingly corrected and sometimes strongly corrected by the Lord. Maybe it was those crafty sons of thunder who thought they would sneak up And in one passage, they asked Jesus for the positions of left and right hand. And then they upset everybody else. Then, in another account, their mothers brought to play. 
I know, we'll send mum. We might, in fact, my reading of it is if we try and combine the two passages, we didn't get anywhere, let's send mum to try. <laughs> Surely she will be able to persuade him to let us do that. <clears throat> Again, they upset everybody. They were indignant with them for doing that. But then there was the rest of them, let's be honest. What a motley crew they were. You don't hear a lot about the other ones, except these front names. But they were indignant, moaning and groaning, bickering behind the scenes. And yet, Jesus served every one of them, including the betrayer. There is something I have learned over the years in ministry, and it's this. There will always be a betrayer. Always. That doesn't mean we should go around worrying about that fact. But there will always be someone who is willing to betray you. It goes with the territory once you start to lead. But that should not mean that we shrink back from taking a position of servant leadership. It hurts so much because if you are a servant leader, what happens is you give of yourself to people and then when you are betrayed, it feels so much harder. If it was someone outside who betrayed you, that's one thing. But when it's someone within you and sometimes within a very close group, it's painful. And yet Jesus, one at a time, washes his disciples' feet and ultimately comes to Judas, washes his feet and looks up into his face, I am sure. But not with condemnation, but with love. Because we've been told he loved them right to the end. He loved Judas right to the end. We are called to be disciples. Paul once said these words. He said, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. Jesus says at the end of this passage, go and do the same thing that I have done. In other words, serve for me. Servant leadership. Go and serve people. John Stott said at the end of 95 years of life on earth, in his last sermon, he said these words. He said he came to the conclusion that the Christian life and discipleship could be summed up in Romans 8:29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be, or he might be, the firstborn among many brothers. Servant leaders cooperate with the Holy Spirit. It's not about, it is about being willing and submission to one another out of love and respect. It is those things. It is about um, serving people. But first and foremost, servant leaders want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. They, they are not there to... Um, Stick totally to the rules. And a bit later when I do something with the new eldership, 
You might think, aren't you contradicting yourself, Dave? No, I hope you will see the intent of heart a bit later on. There appears to me to be a biblical principle of being willing to surrender, often shown by speaking to the Lord about the desire to walk after him, but accompanied with this is corresponding action. In fact, the word in the Old Testament used for listen, shema, has two parts to it. It means to hear with the ear, but it also means to respond in action. And you've got verses of Scripture in the Old Testament which are very clear that if you hear with the ear, but you don't respond with corresponding action, you have not heard. Servant leaders cooperate with the Holy Spirit. They tell the Lord about their desire to follow him. But they don't just stop by telling their desire. They accompany it with the corresponding actions. In this room, there are many of you, in fact, if not all of you, who have leadership, not just potential, but responsibility. If you are the head of your home, you have leadership responsibility. If you're a mother, you have responsibility, not on your own, but with your husband, you have responsibility over your children. That is a leadership role. That isn't just any old role, that's a leadership role. There is the need to serve even your children in order that you emulate and display Jesus to them. It's not always just about putting doctrine into their hearts. It is about modelling Christ. It's about modelling Christ. The Apostle Paul, as I've said, said, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. But he instructs people in the whole sway of doing this. He, he, he does this. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds or thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's the thing that keeps people away from knowing Jesus. It isn't just, I mean, hardness of heart is sin. And I know people don't like these days us mentioning the word sin because somehow... It just, in our PC age, it just doesn't seem right, but the Bible talks about it. So I'm not embarrassed about mentioning that little three-letter word sin with I in the middle, which is the whole problem, me, you. But it's because they harden, we harden our hearts against God. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God is a holy God. 
God is not one who can be mocked. Ultimately, God's holiness will be the very thing that is the separating factor between the sheep and the goats on the final day. Peter instructs those to whom he writes in a similar way. When in 1 Peter 1 he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were, this is where I got so blessed this morning, knowing that you were ransomed, bought, paid for, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower will fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it is this word that is the good news that was preached to you. I could go on and preach another sermon on that little passage. It excites me this morning that I've been bought with a price. I am valuable and so are you. Why should I be prepared to serve as a servant leader? It's because God has invested so much in me. Why should you serve your wife or your wife serve your husband as a servant leader in your family? I tell you why. Because you are valuable. You were bought with a price. We are to be holy as he is holy. We should not mind serving one another out of love for one another, preferring one another in love. And when we come this morning to commission the elders, the new elders in this church, 
They are committing themselves to a life for their length of time in that position as servant leaders to serve. Not domineering, not positional, but serving, serving you, loving you, encouraging you to walk closer to Jesus. Why should they do that? They were bought with a price. They are invaluable. They are invaluable. I won't preach to you, but prepare your minds for action. Gird up, make yourselves ready. Leviticus 11.44 is the connection here. Consecrate yourselves because he is holy. Set yourself apart to him. Be sober-minded. Exercise self-control. Seriously, folk, if we want to be good parents, we have to exercise self-control, except at football. All right? I have to say that because I went to the football with Steve yesterday. And so he saw me at my worst. <clears throat> Shouting at the referee, unfortunately, Martin. So um, he was atrocious, though. Set our minds on the grace that will be brought to us on Christ's return. In other words, put all your hope, all your expectation fully, completely, perfectly in him. The picture that I want to give you this morning, if you've seen it, the child stood on a wall or by the side of a swimming pool and the dad or the mum in the swimming pool saying, jump to me and I'll catch you. Have you ever seen that actually in per- I have. I've done it. Jump to me. I'll catch you. You won't drown. Promise. And a child, before it's got any fear, jumps. Once that child has had a bad experience, he hesitates or she will hesitate. But if they trust their father or their mother, they will jump. They will jump because they believe you. Don't be shaped by your former passions. How our former passions love to try and get hold of us. Don't be shaped by them. Don't let them press you into their mold. Be brutal with them. Stand against them. You might fall, but that matters not when you come before Jesus and you confess your sin and you ask him for forgiveness and you try again. The thing is, don't give up. Don't give up. Be holy. Be a set apart for him. Conduct ourselves with fear whilst we wait for Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you something I would love to tell you that that word just meant reverence and awe. But in this case, it doesn't just mean reverence and awe. It means fear. It means take this seriously. Recognize we're ransomed, we're rescued, set free, liberated. We've been paid for. We've had a ransom paid for us. Not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Purify ourselves by being obedient to the truth. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And love God's word because it is God's word which is good news to us. It's God's word that's good news to us. It's the thing that tells us that we're made holy in the eyes of God. It's the reason we know that we can walk confidently into the presence of our Saviour. And the almighty God when we gather to worship.
Servant leadership. Servant leadership. The buzz words at the moment in Christendom and has been for quite some time is discipleship. We need to reinstitute discipleship in the church. If we're going to do that, that means every one of you is a leader. Every one of you. Because you can only lead people as as a disciple to where you are. You can't lead them. You can't sit there. I can say to you, it says here, but if I haven't walked to there, it's going to ring hollow. We have to walk the walk and talk the talk. All right? And when we do, we need to be involved in the work of our Father in heaven, which is, as Jesus left us, with a commission to go and make disciples of all nations. I don't want to be overly controversial. He didn't tell us to go and teach them necessarily a whole load of our doctrines. What he called us to do was to make disciples, to apply doctrine to life and teach them to walk in the same way. Now, you have to know doctrine to be able to apply it to life. It's applied theology. But the reality is... It's not, we don't want to just teach them parrot fashion phrases about the future state, the kingdom of God. We want them to live out, people to live out that life. So every one of you in this room this morning, if you love Jesus, you are to be a servant leader. You might not be an elder but you are called to be a servant leader to serve people and to lead them to Jesus at the end of the day it's their choice whether they accept and they walk with him not yours it's not your job to convict them of sin that's the Holy Spirit's job but our job is to be an example and lead and to show and to demonstrate.